We're going to be looking at quite a few scripture references this evening, and, and we won't have to turn to all of them, but I'm going to read several, and some of them are pretty big chunks. And so I'm just going to jump quickly into the, the lesson and, and recap the three points of our Sabbath reasoning up until this point. First, remember that everyone has a Sabbath doctrine. That is a law of nature. Secondly, God has revealed His Sabbath doctrine in His law, the Ten Commandments. Last Lord's Day, we saw thirdly, that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, clearly reveals a worship-to-work proportion of one day out of every seven. And that proportion of time is only the start of God's revealed Sabbath doctrine, or the biblical doctrine of the Sabbath. That proportion is based on God's pattern in creation. We saw also that the Sabbath is a covenant blessing where God's people join Him in His rest. If we go back to Adam and Eve, it was not primarily that they could get some rest from their exhausting labors, but that they would come and join God in His rest. And that earthly Sabbath observance for them and for the people of Israel and for us, the Sabbath observance is a sign and a foreshadowing of the eternal rest that is still to come. As glorious as Adam had it, a Sabbath reminded him there's more to come than what you even see here. So those are the three points. Everyone has a Sabbath doctrine. God's is revealed in His law. And the law of God clearly reveals a one day out of seven proportion. Now we move to the next step in our argument. And I'm going to pick up reading in the confession. I'm going to start from the beginning and, and just add another phrase to it. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God... So by His Word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him. And now we pick up. Which, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, was the last day of the week. In this phrase, we've moved one step beyond the proportion of time per week to address a time frame in redemptive history during which a specific day of the week was observed as the Sabbath according to that proportion of one day in seven. So we're thinking about a proportion of time, a time period or a, a time frame. And I want to consider it under two headings. First, the significance of this time period. And then number two, the Sabbath of this time period. And the simple truth that I want us to get this evening is basically just the, the statement from the confession, although I truncated it down just a bit. From creation to resurrection, the Sabbath was on the last day of the week. So you're, you're talking with somebody. You're trying to reason with them. You could say, everybody has a Sabbath doctrine. I know you have a Sabbath doctrine. God has revealed His doctrine in His law. In His law, He has required one day out of seven. And from creation to the resurrection of Christ, that one day was the last day of the week. Which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. So point number one, the significance of this time period. Now, as those who live under what we might call the times of the gospel, we may very often fail to see the significance of the events in history prior to the coming of Christ. Another 
extreme or, or a ditch on the other side of the road is that there are many who let all of the events prior to Christ's return carry too much weight and they bring too much of that into the times of the gospel. As a safe and biblical middle ground, we need to see that the events from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ all funneled toward Christ and prepared the way for Him. And at the same time, they can only be rightly understood and applied in light of the revelation of Christ. And so if we, if we, and we've done this before, we try to, maybe we divide our Bibles up into Old Testament, New Testament, or we try to picture the, the, the events of history on a, on a timeline from uh, BC and AD. But what we need to understand is all of those events prior to Christ, they're not to be ignored. And yet, they are not to be allowed to stand alone by themselves. Now we wholeheartedly believe that the revelation given prior to Christ was sufficient to lead men to a saving knowledge of God through faith in Christ. They were saved by looking to Christ just as we are saved by looking to Christ. But we do not believe that the revelation they had was complete in and of itself. It was sufficient for them, but it was not complete apart from Christ. And this is the difference between what we would call the Ordo Salutis and the Historia Salutis. The Ordo being the, the events in the, the personal salvation of an individual. Did they have enough? Of course. Could an individual be saved by grace through faith under the Old Covenant? Absolutely. But in the history, the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation, the fullness of the revelation had not yet come. So think about this time period. And let's fix it in our minds, a, a broad conception. Maybe you, maybe you can picture the table of contents in your Bible. Maybe you, can, you just hold up your copy of the Scriptures and you recognize that that seems like two-thirds of it are prior to Christ's coming, if not more than that. The, the great bulk of it. Just try to picture this time period. As the Confession describes it as from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ. If the seventh day of creation, God's Sabbath, was on what our calendars refer to as Saturday, then the first day of creation was on what our calendars refer to as Sunday. It was on a Sunday that God said, let there be light. And the resurrection of Christ was on the first day of the week, according to the same counting of days, which would make it also on a Sunday. So the time period that we're talking about here, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, I would argue, goes to the resurrection of Christ, but not through the resurrection of Christ. In other words, the final Sabbath prior to the resurrection would be the day that Christ was in the tomb, that Saturday as Luke records it in Luke 23, 56, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Greek. And it would make sense that Luke would have to explain to this Greek why the followers of Jesus, after all that had taken place, would prepare the spices and then sit and just take a break for a day. Well, it was according to their Sabbath commandment. He explains that that was the, we could call that the final Saturday Sabbath. And our time period here is from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ. Or in our modern vernacular, it began on a Sunday 
and it ended on a Saturday. And during this time period, we have things like the creation of all things. Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2, we have the fall of man into sin. Genesis 3, the narrative of Cain killing his brother Abel, the narrative of Noah and the flood, the story of Nimrod and the tower of Babel and the plain of Shinar, the narrative biographies of men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We have the story of the the bondage in Egypt and the plagues and then God bringing His people out of Egypt in the Exodus. Their entrance into the land of Canaan. Stories that we know like the the falling of the walls of Jericho. the, the, The judgment or judging of men like Samson. The stories of King David, King Solomon. We just began to read and we're getting really close to the, the divided kingdom under uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. The writings and, and lives of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah. The exile into Babylon. Daniel in the lion's den. That took place in this time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. That took place during this time. The return of the captives under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. They're, they're coming back into the land. That took place. The intertestamental period. We don't have a record of that in our Scriptures following Malachi and into what we would consider the New Testament times. That would all fall under this category of from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ. The life and ministry of John the Baptist would fall under this category. And the life and ministry of Christ Himself up to His crucifixion and His death and His burial, all of that falls under this time period from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ. It's quite an extensive chunk of history. There's a lot of things happening. Again, it makes up the bulk of the information in our Bibles. That's the period that we're dealing with. Now with that period fixed in your mind, think about this. When we come to the New Testament, how do the apostles of Christ, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how do they think about that time period? It, it, was, it was passed to them. It's passed to us. How do they explain it? What, what did they think about that, that period of time? Just recently we looked at Acts 17.30 where Paul refers to the times of ignorance. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Remember that, the times of ignorance, but now. Something has changed. Prior to Christ's resurrection, those were times of ignorance. That ignorance meaning the gospel of Christ had not been made known in this expansive, global way. He says, but here's the contrast, but now God God commands all men everywhere to repent. This is the time of worldwide preaching of the gospel and repentance. And what is the difference? It's the completing of the work of Christ and the sending of His Holy Spirit to to His church and the sending out of preachers. But He referred to that time period as the times of ignorance. We could pair that with what He says in Ephesians chapter 3. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What was the mystery hidden for the ages in in that former time period? It was that which was then and now being revealed through the church. A worldwide phenomenon of people from, from all languages and peoples coming into the pale of the Christian church. Now it's worth noting, especially as you're reading through your Old Testament, that the Scriptures repeatedly speak of that time of worldwide ingathering. 
of peoples and nations coming to worship God. As we just read, foreigners and eunuchs coming into the assembly. And yet, that reality was not experienced until after the resurrection of Christ. In other words, as you read the Old Testament Scriptures, that time from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, it's always looking forward to the time after the resurrection of Christ. The entire mosaic economy is often referred to as simply the law. In Galatians, Paul puts forth this rhetorical question, why then the law? In other words, why, if God had already made this covenant with Abraham to bless the nations through his seed, why would he bring in this additional covenantal arrangement that certainly seems to define almost the entire Old Testament dispensation? As, as, as we heard the other week, some have said, if you get Israel right, you get the Bible right, as if Israel is the defining factor of the Scriptures. It's, it's such a broad chunk that some people can't see around it. And he's saying, why, why do this? If he's already made a promise through Abraham to bless the nations, why does he do this thing that seems like it's not really the point? And he, he answers that. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, it was given, the law was given to curb sin until Christ should come. The whole mosaic economy was preparatory for Christ and His church. Galatians 4.4, 4, he goes on to say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Christ came in the fullness of the time, which would imply that prior to Christ's coming, the time had not reached its fullness. Now what does that assume except that God had predetermined when that fullness would be, Prior to Christ's coming, the fullness had not arrived, and so that everything before Christ was less than fullness. Looking forward to, leading to the fullness, leading to the coming of Christ. And Mark writes this in Mark 1, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, everything is looking forward in this time period. Everything. And so we, we might ask, why do we have so much of a record? Why do we have so much Old Testament if that is in fact not really the real point of redemptive history? 1 Corinthians 10.6 says these things took place as examples for us. Us, meaning the New Covenant community, the church. These events of history took place as an example for us who would come after them. Which implies, again, that they did not stand on their own. Even the events of providence in history were always forward-looking in the plan of God. They took place as an example so that we would have something to look back to and to learn from. In addition to that, we have... Statements made which clarify why God the Holy Spirit led men to keep the record of the events themselves. Peter says in Acts 3, 24-26, All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first 
to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He says the prophets spoke of these days. Why did they write it down? Why do we have a record? Why were they proclaiming? Why were they preaching? They were proclaiming these days. What are these days? God having raised up His servant. The days following the raising up of Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit, and the preaching of the Gospel. It was all looking forward to the greater, fuller, worldwide work of salvation. That same Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, "...the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories." Listen to this. this is, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. He's writing to a New Testament audience. The Old Testament prophets, it was revealed to them. They knew as they were writing, I'm not just writing this for me. I'm writing this for a people, a future generation that's coming after me. They knew I'm not, we're not just serving us. We're writing for something in the future. And they prophesied about the grace that would be given under the gospel. Back to 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The Holy Spirit led the oracles of God to be written down for the purpose of instructing us, the New Testament church, we who live at the end of the ages, that is, in the final times of redemptive history. The only thing to come after the present age is the eschaton, the age to come. We're at the end of it. It was written down for our instruction. It's all looking forward. So from the beginning of the world, all of the acts of God, all of the events of history, and inscripturated revelation were preparatory unto the coming of Jesus Christ, and especially His resurrection, outpoured Spirit, and New Testament church. It was never... Simply Israel. Nor, and and listen closely, nor was it merely Christ. The mystery was that in Christ and by His Spirit, a church of saints would be redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that plan officially lifted off the ground following the resurrection more specifically, at Pentecost. And it has continued until this day. And so the time period that we're considering from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, everything prior to that completed work, everything up to the Saturday which He spent in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea is all forward-looking. All preparatory. None of it stands alone. It's it's not the finished product. Nothing is to be taken as final or complete during that time period apart from what God is now doing. That's the significance of this time period. It prepared the way. Now that doesn't mean that it's insignificant in any other way. It doesn't mean that people weren't truly saved and born again and and brought into the, the kingdom of God during that time period. But all of that was getting ready for the coming of Christ. Point number two, the Sabbath 
in this time period. Our confession says, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath was the last day of the week. So during that time period we just described, the largest portion of our scriptures and all of those events that are taking place, all of it looking forward, the Sabbath during that time period was the last day of the week. Now that might seem like a very simple statement. It's actually highly debated. And what I mean by that is there are many who would argue that the observance of a Sabbath did not begin at creation, but began with the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, and therefore it is exclusive to the Old Covenant. There, there are some who would say, well, well the Sabbath, that's, that's just the law. Well, we would argue, no, it was prior to that. But they would, they would debate that. We would argue that as a part of the moral law of God, a Sabbath observance was instituted from creation, from the beginning of the world written on the hearts of Adam and Eve themselves, and has always been a blessing from God upon His people. As a matter of fact, the first statement we see with regard to the Sabbath is in Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to read some passages that we've read before. Genesis 2, 1-3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Now somebody might say, well, that text doesn't say anything about the Sabbath. We would say, actually, as a matter of fact, it does. In verse 2, a literal translation would be, and He Sabbathed on the seventh day from all His work. And then in verse 3, because on it God Sabbathed from all His work. The word means Rest or ceased. God stopped. Somebody, somebody might respond, well, yeah, but He doesn't prescribe observance of the Sabbath for Adam and Eve. It just says that God did it. Well, there's, there's more to be said in a moment, but the ideas of blessing and making the day holy only make sense in light of a blessing for man and a sanctification of the time by men. We might ask, how does an infinite and eternal God sanctify a period of time that He just created when He Himself stands outside of time? Well, the answer is, this is something that God has done for man. We'll see that in a moment. When we get to Genesis chapter 4, we read an interesting statement with regard to the worship of Cain and Abel in verses 3-5. through in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. That phrase, in the course of time, again would literally read, at the end of days. And some have suggested rather convincingly that this phrase could be better translated for us, at the end of the week. In other words, on the Sabbath, it would indicate a formal time of collective worship on the Sabbath day. Why else would they both come at the same time to the same place to worship? Another text, and this doesn't make any mention of the Sabbath, but it's very telling as to the way mankind conducted himself. Genesis 29, verses 27 and 28. Laban is speaking to Jacob and he says, Complete the week of this one. And we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. 
Laban said, complete the week. And Jacob completed her week. How do you know what a week was? Was this an eight-day week? Was it a 12-day week? A 16-day week? How did he know? The word week means a seven-day period. Where did that come from? Someone might say, well, I don't see God instituting a Sabbath at creation, to which we could respond, well, I don't see God instituting a seven-day week either, but apparently the entire world is observing a seven-day consecutive schedule in their lives. It's called a week. The Scriptures are clear that God's pattern of six days of work and one of rest, that is a seven-day week, was taken and adopted by the human race, beginning with Adam and Eve. Again, God is infinite and eternal. God has no need of ongoing time markers to keep Him on a schedule. The pattern of six and one and the seven-day week was made by God for mankind. In Exodus chapter 16... God's begun to feed the people with manna. In verses 21 to 26, it says, Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sixth from what? Who started, who's the guy who started counting the days? Where are you at? What day are we on? How do we know what's, what's the sixth day? Because we know what the first day is. And we know what the seventh day is. There is a, a keeping of time. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Tomorrow being the seventh day. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So there was clearly a Sabbath observance by the people of God following their exodus from Egypt. Now, it's very likely that the Egyptians themselves did not let the Hebrews observe that day of rest, but here they quickly return to the God-ordained pattern as soon as they have a, a, a habitual schedule of work. The same institution and moral law was used as the basis for the commandment at Mount Sinai, which God wrote with His own finger in stone. Exodus 20, verses 8-11, through 11, which we've read many times. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God never said, hey, the, the proportions one in seven. Pick a day. He said, I've picked your day. It's the seventh. He picked the day. In many places after the meeting of the people of God and with God at Mount Sinai, we see the Sabbath referenced. I'll, I'll read one from Numbers, one from Isaiah, which we've already read, and one from Nehemiah. Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36. While the people of Israel in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. 
And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Notice that all of the people had a collective understanding about what day the Sabbath was. It was the seventh day. They understood. They saw a man, plural, they saw a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. No one said, well, maybe yesterday was his Sabbath. God just said one in seven. Maybe yesterday was His Sabbath and tomorrow will be mine. No, there was an understanding that God has appointed today. It is the seventh day. And He was put to death. The text we read at the beginning, Isaiah 56, verses 2-7, to seven, Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps His hand from doing any evil. And goes on to address the foreigner, the eunuch who keeps the Sabbath. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And it's interesting to note in that passage, the language of Isaiah's prophecy only makes light in, in or only makes sense in light of the new covenant and the worship of God by a global people, foreigners, eunuchs, people who, who would prior to the new covenant would have been severed from the covenant community, which indicates that the Sabbath will continue beyond the times of ceremonial exclusion of eunuchs and foreigners from the assembly of God. And then in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, they're following the captivity. They've gone into Babylon. It's amazing that the Sabbath remains with the people of God even though they come and, and go in the land and out of the land Nehemiah is governing the returned exiles as they rebuild the wall. And it says in Nehemiah 13, verses 15 to 22, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. What day was that? Well, that would have been the seventh day. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. They're working, you see. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. They're selling. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, this will be foreigners, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. That, that's buying, commerce, business. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah. He goes to the leaders and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. We look at the state and the condition of the church in our day. We look at, at the, what seems like the, the, the rubble of the professing visible church. What might be the problem? We'll ask them, where did you get your Sabbath doctrine? Did you get it from God? Are you obeying God? Are you, are you profaning His Sabbath? That is a, a, a warrant for God's judgment upon His covenant people. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath... I commanded that the doors should be shut 
and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. This seems like a little extreme, right? This is a, an overbearing um, a helicopter governor, if you will. Look, if you are not going to keep the Sabbath, I'll just shut the gate so that you have to keep it. He's doing what it takes to keep the day of the Lord sacred. He says, I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I'll come outside the wall. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then as often in the case in Nehemiah, he offers this prayer, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. He says, look at what I've done. I have done everything in my power, including threatening physical violence, to keep your day holy. Remember it. He forbade Israelites and foreigners from doing any work or business on the Sabbath. He even forbade them to sit and wait for the Sabbath to be over. Why? Because the Sabbath is not, not a day to wait for work to start. It's a day that is to be kept holy to the Lord. Now, most of us have a blank page in our Bibles dividing the Old and New Testaments or the Old and New Covenant somewhere between Malachi and Matthew. But the new covenant was not formally ratified until the bloodshedding of Christ. That means that all of the events of the life of Christ in the Gospels prior to His death were conducted within the bounds of the old covenant and are to be treated in the same time period. And so the Sabbath would have been the same for Christ as it was for all of His others. If you pay attention to the Gospel of John, you'll see that a lot of, if not most, of the controversy that is recorded in that Gospel surrounds how Jesus observed the Sabbath and how He treated the Sabbath compared to the perversion of the Sabbath by the Pharisees. The Sabbath was very important to our Lord. Of the many statements made, Christ's word in Mark chapter 2 is probably the most important. He said to them, Mark 2.27, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Notice the language. The Sabbath was made. Creation. The Sabbath was made for man, not Jews. Mankind. So the Son of Man, that is Christ, in His mediatorial role, is Lord of the Sabbath. Has the rule over the Sabbath has authority over its dispensation and its observance specifically as a mediator to His covenant people. Which means any positive aspects of the Sabbath may or can be changed according to His precept, prohibition, or precedent. Especially as may suit His work as Son of Man and mediator of a New Covenant people. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. In addition to that, Christ, as He describes the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, 20, says, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, which seems to imply that Christ saw a future observance for the Sabbath just as He did for winter. 
He doesn't have any concept of a disappearing Sabbath. So the Sabbath during this time period, following God's work and rest pattern, was observed by those in covenant with God on the last day of the week. Now if we put both of these points together, the significance of the time period, it's all looking forward, and the Sabbath in the time period, the seventh day of the week, would say this, While it is clear that the Sabbath from creation to Christ was on the last day of the week, the seventh from creation's first, it must also be remembered that this entire time period was preparatory for another. That its events and writings all look forward to the times of the New Testament, to the outpoured Spirit, and to the ministry of the church of Christ among all nations. So if there were positive aspects of the Sabbath commandment, rooted in types and shadows, would we not expect, not demand, but would we not expect that those elements rooted in types and shadows would give way to the true form or at least advance with redemptive history? We would expect something ought to be moving forward when the fullness comes. In closing, let's ask this question once again. Why was the Sabbath during this time of forward-looking and preparation observed on the seventh day of the week? Why the seventh? Because it followed God's own work and rest pattern in creation. And after the exodus, redemption was also added as a work of God to be remembered or commemorated on the seventh day. Both creation and redemption, mighty works of God, were the subjects of the contemplative worship and rejoicing of the people of God during that time period we just described. And we see this especially in the prayers of Scripture. Look at how often they look back to what God done in creation. Look at how often they look back to what God done in the Exodus. Read the Psalms. How often do they call attention to what God has done in creation and God's redeeming of His people over and over again. The saints are calling to mind God's powerful work in creation. His mighty acts of redeeming the nation from Egypt. Creation, redemption. Creation, redemption. Look at what God has done. But if all of that was prior to Christ, preparing the way for Christ, do we have any indication that the works of creation and redemption from Egypt could be seen as typological or at least forward-looking in their application. To put it another way, is creation meant to stand all by itself with, with no, no greater fulfillment than simply the, the creation of dirt and water and, and bugs and leaves? Redemption from Egypt... Does that stand all by itself? That's all it was? God brought those people out, but that's happened and it doesn't point to anything else. It doesn't have any greater meaning, any, any, any other anti-type it might be pointing to. Do we have any indication in the New Testament that that could be the case? To put it more bluntly, is there anything in the Scriptures that would lead us to conclude that a greater and fuller work of creation and redemption has taken place through Jesus Christ which defines the present time, the end of the ages, in a way comparable to the way creation and exodus define the old covenant people of God. Is there any reason to believe that the work of Christ 
was so extensively epoch-changing in nature that the very positive precept of the Sabbath could be altered so that though the proportion of one day in seven remains, the specific day on which the Sabbath is observed would change to commemorate this new and greater work. For almost 2,000 years, the dwarfing majority of the Christian church has said, yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as the beginning of the new creation, the conclusion of the work of spiritual redemption, and the climax of the works of God to which all of history has pointed is the event at which the Lord of the Sabbath claimed His new day. That has been the predominant view of the church. and Which is why you'll find old writers referring to Psalm 118 as, a, as an Old Testament prophecy and defense of Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Christian Sabbath. Psalm 118, verses 19 to 24. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The Sabbath was made for man. The psalmist says that when the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone, when it was fixed into its place as the stone from which the temple of God would be built, that's the day that the Lord has made. When did that happen? I would say it happened when Christ rose from the dead, having completed all of the work necessary for the saving of every soul that would ever be saved. There's no more work of redemption that has to take place. All that has taken place from that point is simply the application by the Spirit of what Christ has done. Just like in God's creating works. He created. There's no more work of creation. He created it. Now He governs it through providence. He, he, he works in His creation. He's not left it, but He's not creating new things. Christ finishes the work required for salvation. He rests from that work. No more is necessary. Now all, needs, all that needs to be done is to, the application of that work to, to bring it to its fullest fruition until Christ's return. And so we'll see next Lord's Day, I hope a fairly convincing defense of the next phrase, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed to the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. Let's pray, and then we'll stand and sing.